All right, everybody else got your Bible? Romans chapter 12. We're going to deal with the first two verses of chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have it up on the screen for you, so no worries. One of the, um, one of the criticisms uh, you hear often of the church is that uh, they live their life no different than everybody else. Have you ever heard that before? And, uh, and there's a little bit of truth to this uh, struggle we have, is that the church can see us when we don't think clearly and don't behave rightly, right? So we would say they, they witness us when we struggle with our particular issues or see us when we fall or, or see us when we're selfish. They see us in those bad moments, um, right? It's like the old adage says that Christians um, aren't perfect, they're just forgiven, and, uh, and that's a true statement. So they can see a struggle. But I, my personal opinion is uh, the, the world isn't judging um, the church's struggles. It's watching the church's life. And it doesn't see a big distinction. And here's what I mean by that. And it's really important that you understand the differences. We aren't perfect. And we are in process. And we do fall down. And we fall down in public. And I get that. But here's the difference about the body of believers. People changed by Christ. We get up. That's called Repentance. And that one thing right there doesn't happen anywhere else. People broken over their sin, recognizing this offense of God, turning from their sin and turning to Christ. That aspect of when we fall is uniquely gospel, uniquely Christian. But here's why I think people can make some uh, judgments of the church is that we, uh, they're not judging our struggles and our rises from the ashes. They're watching our life and our life doesn't look right. We kind of stay in those positions. In fact, um, Paul was uh, teaching the young pastor, Timothy, about what he can expect in the world, and I would say partly in the religion. Uh, This he describes as people who have a form of godliness but don't have any evidence of it. So he describes this is what's going to be a part of our world, the end times. That in the last days there there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, Unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. In other words, there's a whole bunch of people who claim, have the impression, leave the world with the impression that there, there is some kind of God focus in our life, but we look and act no different. And those charges can, can stick. And so what we're dealing with today in uh, Romans chapter 12 is is Paul talking about, and we've been here before, the absolute certainty that God transforms his people. No confusion. That God is doing something in our life more than just saving us. He's changing us, right? And so that's what we pick up in uh, chapter 12. In fact, that's mainly Paul's theme all the way through it. That if the world looks at us, and you should know this, if the world looks at us and sees no difference, there's a serious problem here. Correct? Correct? If you're a guy who's a businessman and you go to those breakfasts, you know, those business breakfast prayer meeting, whatever, and you do the same shady deals everyone else does, they're going to say there's no difference about you. If you're a woman going to the weekly mid-Wednesday Bible study and you're in the same gossip circles and slanderous moments, they're going to say there's nothing different about you. If you're a student and uh, you're going to young life or student ministry and you're at the same parties they are on Friday night doing the same things they're doing, they're not going to know. They're going to be confused and they're going to see that and say, well, there's nothing real about this gospel. 
And I think that's why we get in these four chapters of now I would call the so what of Paul's gospel, this doctrine, and see what realities this gospel will have on our, our lives, this transformation. God, through Christ, by faith, really does change the people. Now, we've been here before. Remember this in Romans chapter 8, two verses you've heard you're probably very familiar with, but we've had this promise already from Paul. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined, what's it say? To be what? Conformed to the image of his son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. We are not only predestined unto salvation, we're predestined unto conformity, to the image of Jesus, both and, not just one. Salvation isn't our get out of hell free card. It's about life change and replication of Christ. And so here in the beginning of chapter 12, Paul deals with the how, the what, and the why of that promise to be conformed in the image of Jesus. So I want to read these two verses. We're going to pray together and then uh, see what Paul has to say. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. God, we need um, your spirit to uh, teach us these truths and to apply them perfectly to our life. My assumptions here is that everyone is gonna have a moment, a place, a time, an illustration where they aren't living transformed lives. Like myself, I pray, God, that you would uh, expose it, remind me of how great this uh, mercy and grace through Christ is for us. Remind us of the work that you're doing. Um, confront us, encourage us, teach us whatever you've got to do, we pray in Christ's name, amen. We have a slogan at Redemption Church and uh, that's probably not a fair, fair word. I don't know what else to call it. It's more than a slogan. It's a biblical convicted um, confession that all of life is all for Jesus. Have you heard this before? It's on t-shirts. You see it on banners. That's a, that's a statement about what we do and why we do it and what matters to us. And, uh, and what it simply means is that everything, everything from the very mundane to the marvelous, everywhere in between is all for one purpose and that is to, uh, for God to get the glory in all things. And we've never actually sat down and said, what's a, what's a passage that we're going to use, like a theme passage to, to make that point? But I suppose if we did, Romans 12, 1 and 2 could be the foundation behind the statement, all of life is all for Jesus. Because that's what Paul's saying. He's talking about the inevitable of people who've experienced the first 11 chapters of God's wonderful gospel. Understood? And so there's some work that God's going to do in us. In essence, let me say it how I think Paul means it here. There's a, he uses the topic of worship specifically, but what Paul's telling us is that all of life is a life of worship. Everything. Remember, what you, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, all to the glory of God. That is worship. Your home life, your business life, your private life, everything is a, is a life of worship. And so it breaks down real simply in these two verses, four, four thoughts. One is why we worship. Two is what is worship. Three is the, the demands of worship. And four is the effects of worship. So let's look at the first one, why we worship. Verse one, 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why do we worship? Not complicated. Maybe your text says, I urge you, brothers, in view, in light of God's mercy. Why do we worship, church? Because of what we received, right? It it is the story complete from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 11. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 talks about the sin problem. I love, uh, Tyler Johnson has a definition for sin to make the point clearly. He says, if, if sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs, okay? And that's a great way to, decide, to just to tell the story that everything in us is twisted and dark. But it isn't cute. It's not funny, the, the remnant of sin, and it's not funny what sin does to us and other people. Sin puts us at odds with God. Sin is what creates this chasm that exists. Sin's what creates no peace and turmoil in our life. Sin's what hurts ourselves and other people. Sin is really, really bad. And that's where Paul started this story of God's wonderful gospel. That's who everybody is. Everybody without exception. Chapter four and chapter uh, five, Paul brings in this wonderful, wonderful truth that uh, faith in Christ Jesus alone brings Peace bridges that gap that exists between God, the enmity that exists. Um, Chapter 6 through 8, we are set free from sin and, unbelievable as it might be, we are set free from the condemnation of sin. God will never bring up a charge against his elect, ever, ever. I try to get my mind around this whole aspect of my life. I'm 53. I'm certain I've got a whole bunch of failures left to come in my life. But God will not be surprised by one and he will not judge me for any because of Christ. It's a perfect righteous robe that covers past, present, and future offenses against the holiness of God. That's how big Christ's righteousness is for us who confess Jesus, who by faith believe that and receive the peace uh, of Christ. We're set free from that. But Paul finishes chapters 9 through 11 with this wonderful perspective of God's plan and God's promise, and here's what he tells us, and he's never, ever, ever going to fail, ever. And so his response, and we looked at it last week, was to explode in praise, makes sense. I can't believe that news. It's too good to be true. It's too perfect, and it's too complete, and it's too finished, and I don't deserve it. And when you're all said and done, we could spend probably, and should spend way more time than we do, just celebrating that truth. But Paul adds in these last four chapters one particular aspect of what worship does. It walks in obedience. It's not just songs. All those songs ascribed together do um, make much of God, but that isn't what he's talking about. He's talking about a life lived in in obedience um, to Christ. And so the point is real clear. The more we understand about God and the more we understand what he's done for us and the grace that we received, we, um, we grow in our commitment. In other, in other words, you could read this passage, this beginning of cha- chapter 12, verse 1 wrong, like, like somehow Paul is asking for us to do God a favor. Come on, church, in view, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, come on, throw God a bone and, and obey. That's not what he's asking. It's a definitive statement that says, in view of what God has done, you're obligated to obey. Not to earn your salvation, not to make God smile upon you, not to receive what you don't deserve, not to hold on to mercy. It is simply because of the greatness of God, you and I now live under a whole different set of circumstances and perspectives. I am obligated to the great. Every day I go out. That's why something as mundane as eating and drinking matter to God. All to the glory of God. 
in view of his mercy. Clear enough? Okay, here's the second thing he tells us about worship. He makes it crystal clear what worship is. Verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, Paul mentions two characteristics of, uh, of, of true worship here. One is that it's total, and the other is that it's reasonable. Total and reasonable. In fact, just the word that Paul uses or the phrase that Paul uses makes it obvious um, in his language what he's suggesting about the totality of our, our offering. He says, offer your bodies. And he's talking way more than skin and bones when he's talking about what we offer. He's talking about everything that we are, everything in us. Um, in fact, Kent Hughes talks about the sacrifice in light of the Old Testament sacrifice. And in fact, what Paul is requiring of the church, sacrifices refer to the Holocaust in which the offering is totally con con consumed. Everything. So, so let's, let's make this clear. Our pride, our will, our agenda, our money, our family, our relationships, our freedoms, um, everything, our reputation, everything belongs to Christ. He's simply saying that's what goes on the altar all the time. And, and by the way, just to make a, a secondary point, it's not just everything, it's everybody. Because I know this is how people typically hear this thing. Everyone feels like their story is the exception to God's rule. Everybody does this. Hey, wait a minute, Tim, I understand that God wants everything, but I'm poor. So because I'm poor, my offering needs to be different. It can't be everything. Because if I don't manage some of these things myself, then I can't survive. It can't be everything for the poor person. And the rich person looks at their wealth and say, well, it's different for me too because I need a diversified giving portfolio. I have a huge amount of influence everywhere. And so my thing is about stewarding my treasures. So my, my response to giving is different. Some people, and I've heard people say this, the people who are extremely average would look at the call of the gospel and discipleship and being part of the body and service and say, I'm just too normal. I don't know enough. I, I, don't, I don't have the understanding of these things. That's why I don't serve, and that's why I don't give myself away. That's why I don't disciple. Although the commands of Scripture are clear, we're saved to serve. We're saved in the process of being discipled and discipling everyone all the time. But nevertheless, we're going to say these rules don't apply to me because, after all, I'm too average. And then there's these exceptional people. These are people that look uber-gifted, right? And they rewrite the rules for themselves, too. And so the world serves them. And uh, they can't stoop low. They have no idea how to be small. They can't wash feet. They can't be made little of. they got to be big. And they create a world around their bigness. It doesn't matter who you are. We look at the commands of Scripture and say, it, it can't apply to my story, can it? God's not asking me for everything. He knows my limitations. He knows my story. He knows the circumstances I'm in. So he clearly is not asking for everything from me, right? Well, he is. From every man, woman, and child, he wants everything. In view of what? His mercies. He gets everything. He deserves ev everything. Now, let me make this uh, kind of blunt with an illustration. If I were to find two men, exceptional men, spiritual men, and I would bring them up here and say, I'm going to tell you about this guy. This guy's name is Rob, and Rob is a spiritual stud, man. I mean, every guy should just measure his life based on Rob. Rob is 90% committed to Jesus. He is ridiculously sold out. 
Like when it comes to how we would compare ourselves to someone really following the commands of Scripture, really giving it away, this guy barely ever fails. And I know this other guy, his name's Tom. He's 98% committed to, the, to Jesus and to sacrifice and to service. We would probably make him the pastor and give him stuff to do and follow his leadership. That, that would be true, and I would too, but let me use an illustration to make my point. If I brought a guy up here and said, this, I, want you, I want you to know Joe. Joe is 98% committed to his marriage, and only 18 times a year does he cheat. That's all. That's all he does. It, just once in a while, he falls off the wagon. Now, we laugh because it's obvious. We don't, we, don't even, we don't even have a file for someone not being all in in their marriage. And yet we have all sorts of thoughts about God that he's cool with just a percentage. Like God's all right if you're trying. Like he's just, he's just looking at your life going, give it a good hearty try. It's not what Paul says. He wants everything. Everything. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying I know of the perfect example of anyone who sold out, but we have to remind ourselves of what Paul is saying in view of the mercy of God. It all has to go. That's what we wake up every day to remind ourselves. The gospel means something. Not just I get out of hell free, but I walk freely now. I don't operate on the rules of this world. I'm not, I'm not conformed, as Paul's going to tell us in a minute, to the the perspectives and values of this world. I live every day to die. What do they say about living sacrifices? They have a tendency to crawl off the altar, right? And so we fight. We fight based on 11 chapters of the most wonderful gospel doctrine you've ever heard to remind ourselves in the next second, he gets everything. In spite of my circumstances, he gets everything, and I'm not the exception, I'm not the exception to the rule. Paul says another aspect of what worship is, not only is it total and complete, it's reasonable. In fact, if you read the King James, I think the King James actually interprets this phrase better than even even the ESV or the NASB. It it actually says reasonable service instead of spiritual worship. Now, I get why they use it, but I want you to see how it's said in the original language. The word that's used for reasonable worship is logical. What Paul is saying right now is that in view of God's mercy, it only makes sense to give it all up. It's, in other words, it's irrational. It's irrational for a believer to claim that he ho- knows God and knows the mercies of God and the forgiveness of God and yet not walk in obedience. It, it's irrational. It makes no sense. And isn't that a great description of spiritual failure? At that moment in time, it's spiritual insanity because we have forgotten what we know. We've forgotten what gives us peace and joy and hope and we, and we walk away from it. Halfway commitment is irrational. When we get to heaven, this is going to be crystal clear. We're going to see Jesus, and we're going to know the story in total, and we're going to know that uh, we wasted a whole bunch of time on things that didn't matter. We're going to understand for all eternity what it's like to give everything we've got for the greatness of God. So it's not only total, but total, it's reasonable. Paul moves on in verse 2 to talk about the demands of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul gives two commands, one negative and one positive. The negative is do not be conformed. I like the way the NIV um, states this phrase. It says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Pattern is the word scheme. World is, is the word age. If you were to rewrite that sentence, Paul simply says, don't be conformed to the schemes of this age. 
It's exactly what John says in 1 John chapter 2 when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. What he's referring to is every scheme, every evil scheme that sets itself up against the authority and the wisdom and the glory of God, every scheme that's against and opposed God, we don't love. We don't go there at all. So Paul simply lowers down the commandment, do not be conformed to the schemes of this world that go in opposition to your God. But here's the problem. And here's where the accusations start to stick to the church. We are way, way too good at conforming. Right? In fact, if you were, if you had the courage, if I had the courage at this moment, just say, here's where I conform. Every one of us would have a list of things that we conform. What we watch, what we listen to, who we talk to, how we talk, how judgmental we are and why we feel like we have the right to our judgments. There's too much here for us to get away with it. But we conform. And so I thought I'd help you with a list of things or signs to know if you're conforming. Maybe, maybe you're the exception to the rule, but I see this more prevalent than not. You're conforming when you're the center of everything. And, and I know you probably don't ever say, that sentence would never come out of your mouth, but it does show itself, doesn't it? As opposed to everything for the glory of God, you're the center of everything. Um, now, I would tell you that type A strong dominant achieving leaders struggle with this quite a bit because they have a tendency to control their world. Not that doesn't mean that average people can't control their world, but this shows up a lot. Therefore, they control people and they use people to get somewhere. So you're the center of everything. You're the victim. It's not your fault. It's got to be somebody else's fault. You're conforming when you end up being the points of life and not the glory of God. You're conforming when your experience is more important than truth. This is classically Christian. And, and by the way, I say it with like sadness. I'm 53 and going up to church. I mean, I've watched church my whole life, even when I was clueless about what it was. But I've seen so many trends in church. But what is, what is clearly the way church is now is that uh, it's kind of no different than a restaurant or a store. People pick it not based on truth, but pick it up based on feel. It's feeling. And... Uh, so we're preoccupied with how we feel. Does it work for me? Does it meet my needs? Do I like it, right? And so what happens is a whole generation or generations of people who call themselves Christians spend most of their time in a critique aspect, complaining and critical of things. The consumerism in the church is crazy rampant. And the thing that kills me more than anything is this, this breaking of covenant. I, I just don't understand it. Like instinctively, God said, I saved you not as an individual, but as a people. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I just can't imagine how difficult it would be to break a relationship with your brother and sister. And yet the church is great at this. They don't, they don't tell you when they're coming or going. They just leave without a whisper. Breaking co- covenant, breaking relationships doesn't matter. And I'm telling you, those are signs of the conforming to the world. It's just like everything else, like picking a restaurant. I'm preoccupied with my experience. The other aspect of what it might look like to conform is that uh, you think values are relative. In other words, how you live and what you do isn't determined by God's standard or God's word, but by what everybody else is doing. You, you live by public opinion. You, um, you live by tolerance, which is a word that's been taken hostage, not by truth. 
So you can explain away being unfaithful to people or things or commitments um, because after all, you're being fulfilled, right? You can uh, lie because after all, everyone's doing it. That's how, that's how you do this. You slide on the truth. You don't tell the whole thing. You don't close the deal if everybody knows every part of the story. You can embrace things that God has clearly commanded not to embrace simply because you would say things have changed. Our culture's changed. The terms have changed. The rules have changed. God's will has changed. God's heart's changed. And so we conform. Now, you might say, that's not me, and God bless you. Glory to God for that. But um, there's a lot of conforming going on. Paul says very clearly, don't. Don't conform. Hold your ground. And here's how he says to do it. Here's the positive command now. The negative is to don't conform to those things. The positive is, is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transform is where we get the English word metamorphosis, which should draw a picture in your head about, you know, maybe a, a cocoon to a butterfly, this wonderful thing. It looks like this, it behaves like this, and suddenly look at it now. And that's the word that God has used for us, his people, when Jesus comes and changes us. It's the word used of Christ when he took Peter and the sons of thunder up on the mountain and says, let me reveal to you my glory. And at that moment, God allowed the essence of Christ to come through his physical being and the light of the sun shone on his face and his clothes lit up, right? It's the very thing that uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians about the realities of the change in a Christian's life where he says this, when we turn to the Lord, when anyone turns to the Lord, this is what happens. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are transformed, metamorphosis, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's what God does to his people. You used to look like this, used to care about that, used to follow those ways, and now you don't. You're a totally different, a totally different being. Now, I love the words that Paul uses here because the precision of the words really unpack this thought even, even more um, for us. But that phrase being transformed is a, is a passive imperative, which simply means that the action that needs to happen happens from outside of us to us. In, in other words, God is faithful through the Holy Spirit and his word to transform us. It's not like I say, okay, God is giving you salvation. Now, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and go out and transform yourself. Go work on some things. Add some rules to your life. Say no. Go live on a mountain somewhere in a cabin away from people in sin. That's not what Paul says. Paul says that God saves the person by his will and decision, and he transforms the person by his spirit and his word. It's an action God takes on us, on our behalf. That's why you can trust the promises of God that we're predestined to be conformed to his image because that's what he's decided for us, not just unto salvation, but into change. Does that make sense? Shake your head if it makes sense to you. Okay. And there's another aspect of this word. It's a, it's a, it's a present tense verb, which simply means this, that it's a gradual day-to-day process with my uh, submission to God's word and will, my responsibility, responsibility to submit to it over time, that's how God changes me, right? So even though God's the actor, and even though he's authoring my, tra- my transformation, I am doing it by submitting to his spirit and his word. Make sense? One writer said it this way. As we answer the call to commitment, we are called to a voice a monumental no to the schemes of this fleeting evil age and a determined yes to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in renewing our minds. 
The no without the yes will lead to a life of futile negation. The yes without the no will lead to frustration because Christ will not dwell in Satan's house. These are not suggestions, but rather imperial commands to obey by all. You get the point? You get, you get Paul's point here? You can walk around saying, no conformity, I'm not going to do those things, but you're not submitting to the spirit or the word. You got legalism. All you got is a bunch of tri- people trying to obey a list of rules to feel better about themselves. But if you choose to stop sinning and say, oh, it's all up to God, I'm just going to be transformed, Holy Spirit and His Word, and you don't do anything, then you're just walking around crippled and being accused of the very things we started this message with. You say you're a Christian, I don't see it. It's both and. It's God's work in me as I submit to Him when He speaks to the Spirit of the Word. Does that make sense? That's the reality of this, of this transformation. Now, this is the last thing Paul says. Paul gives us the effects of worship. Second half of verse two. So he says, but we're transformed by the renewal of our mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's what he says. If we submit to God's word, if we submit to God's spirit, if we push back on the conformity of the world in us, we're going to have a peace and an understanding of God and his will that you can't get any other way. He says the good and the pleasing and the perfect will of God. One writer said it this way. He said, the one who is committed to God sees life with a sure eye. I love that. Our counseling department is full of people who don't see with sure eyes. They're convinced that their marriage or their story is unique or it's unsavable. They're convinced that the sickness that they're in or the financial crisis that they're in is, is an unfixable problem. They don't see life with a sure eye. Here's the promise of Paul to the church if we don't conform and if we listen to the Spirit and the Word. We walk around knowing what's good and right to do, what pleases God, and ultimately what fulfills me and sustains me. That's the pleasing part. And I need to remind you of this, church. God is way more into your joy, your peace, than you ever would be. And he knows precisely how to do it. And when you don't know joy and peace, you know right away that it's you, not him. Because that's what God does. He's the one that delivers on these promises. Now watch this. It's very specific, and it's not very complicated. And you're all going to know the answer to this. One, one uh, theologian, Gerald Sitzer, said this. The will of God, as it turns out, is not something we need to discover, for it's as plain as the nose on your face. Rather, it's something we need to do. In the rare moments when I'm ruthlessly honest with myself, I realize that my anxious efforts to discover the will of God distract me from facing the real issue. I simply do not do the will of God that is already clear to me. I'd rather assign the will of God to a far-off future where I can safely or anxiously contemplate it as a range of options from which I must choose. That option seems far safer than treating it as it really is, a set of commands that show me in no uncertain terms how I should live my life every day in the light of God's grace. My problem is not that I do not know the will of God. It's that I do not do the will of God I know. It is not ignorance that plagues me. It's a lack of faith and stubbornness of heart. I'm like a child who worries about what she's going to do on the weekend as a convenient excuse for not doing the chores of every day. Here's the deal, church. It's not mysterious. How does God transform a people? 
How does God give us a clear understanding of what he wants us to do and how to live? How do we know the good and the pleasing and acceptable, perfect will of God? You know the answer. You already know the answer. It is the word of God around the people of God, the worship of God, doing his will every day, all the time, never, never get off the gas. And if we're that people, if he gets everything, if we have a living sacrifice that we offer to him and we don't hold back anything, what will come out of that is true, true worship. And I'll bet, I'll bet the world will look at you and say something like this. I, I don't know everything about what drives them. But the way they live, they live their life as it's all for Jesus, which is the essence of our story. That's what we've been saved to do is now we have a new, a new compass, a new rudder, a whole new reason to live is that he is worthy of all praise, glory, and honor. Amen? Amen? Amen. He is committed to our transformation. He's committed to revealing his glory in us. So push back on the conformity part and embrace the transformation and watch what God does with our life. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the gospel. It just keeps getting better. But Father, you saved us from your wrath from you, from the condemnation of sin and the judgment of an eternity separated from you in a place called hell. You've adopted us as sons and daughters. You've made us a, a holy priesthood, a royal nation. We belong to you. God, you have set about a work to transform us completely into the image of Jesus. And in time, through the word and your power, it'll happen. God, we're not what we used to be. We're not what we used to be. But it's easy for us to forget that there's something to not do. God, give us the strength to push back on the ways in which we've conformed. Give us the courage to embrace the things that transform us, your word, your people, your will over time. God, every bit of it, if there's any good in it, you're doing it. We praise you for that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.